There are days that define your story beyond your life. Welcome to 5-Minute Arrival. The podcast where we look at the film Arrival five minutes at a time. I'm Robert. I'm Sarah. Any questions? Where do they want? Where are they from? Why are they here? This is a priority. Our priority today, minutes 51 through 55, which begin by cutting away from the scene with the horse before we have any idea what the context is. We don't even 100% know that it's Hannah and Louise because we don't see their faces. But, hey, they gave us a horse. Yeah. <laughs> and I'd like to note, we're now in the second half of the film, officially. Mm, yeah. And a lot more starts to happen in terms yes. of action and furthering of the plot. And <laughs> Even this horse segment is furthering the ongoing story of Louise and her memory and everything else. Because in this moment, the editing suggests she is seeing this right there. That's why she doubled over it, not because of, like, the contamination or whatever else happened. Right, right. It was the intensity of the memory or the intensity of that experience. It might not even be what we call memory exactly, Mm -hmm. but just that experience itself being so real. And we get animal imagery several times in memory, which is also in dreams Mm -hmm. often. (laughs) Anything interesting about horses? Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, I thought you were about to say something else. Yeah. So, horse imagery is interesting because depending on culture, there are some different meanings (laughs) of the horse as a symbol. In Christianity, it's a symbol of death. And you being more of a biblical scholar than I do know why, because I didn't read too much about that, why in Christianity, horse would be a death symbol. Does it have to do with revelation? Probably the four horses of the apocalypse, because the fourth one is death and the other three bring death. Otherwise, no. Horses are also known, of course, for contributing to the spread of civilization. I believe they're talked about in kind of the black Well, yeah. (laughs) The Romans linked horses with Mars, the god of war, Mm -hmm. but Celtics viewed horses as good fortune and more peace. Carl Jung, who was a psychologist who wrote a lot about archetypes, viewed the horse as a symbol of self-actualization or like coming into into your own for those who most of us have least heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but For those who haven't or maybe forgot, self-actualization is the highest or the top of that pyramid, and it's the thing that Maslow said that we all would aspire to, right? After we have our physical needs and safety needs met, we work our way up until we are self-actualized. Maslow's theory, of course, is steeped in a lot of privilege. Your ability Mm. to self-actualize is going to be... I mean, he did say... Your ability to do that will be based on these base pyramid functions. Yeah, the lower functions come first. Yeah. (laughs) And then when a horse is enclosed, it symbolizes that something is holding you back and limiting your autonomy and or your desire for freedom. So, of course, with it being the symbol of death, we have the more literal cancer Mm -hmm. storyline, which doesn't... Well, and especially with it... the end of last segment, the horse started as this blurry thing we couldn't identify. Right. And then it became the horse. Yeah, and that's how literal and metaphorical illness or disease tends to work. Mm -hmm. You feel, you sense that something's wrong, but you don't know what's what's wrong right away. 
But in terms of the positive associations with the horse, with self-actualization and striving for autonomy and freedom, we see that transformation happening with Louise as she gains knowledge and learns from Abbott and Costello. (laughs) I was going to reference what horses mean in like Western film, but I don't know where Eric Heisserer is from. And Denis Villeneuve is French-Canadian. So he might not have this exact same reference, but he is yeah. steep in film. Right. Because in Westerns, it's very much that sense of freedom. In Western film, yeah. the horse is what lets the man go wherever he wants. Mm-hmm. And in more modern film, it also lets women go wherever they want. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning of the film, we saw Hannah dressed in her cowboy horse costume. Yeah. Playing around. In the original story, she plays pony games. We don't know exactly mm-hmm. what they are, but her mother says, like, none of those before bed. Like, it gets her too excited. And so she's, there's definitely a sense of horses. And I'm trying to remember how much it comes back in later in the film. Well, stay tuned and we'll. Right. <laughs> I, back, I, we'll I wondered for it. a moment if at some point in the scripting process, they went from her mountain climbing accident in the story to some sort of horse riding accident, mm-hmm. eventually getting to cancer, but left some of the horse stuff in because it's yeah. in the original story. Because, like, was there some other combination of elements where they tried to fit things together mm-hmm. differently? But I don't know, because I've only seen one version of the script. Now, I mentioned the editing. The There's a thing, and if you listen to podcasts about movies, you probably heard someone reference this before, called the Kuleshov effect, which is the common example is you see a man smiling, you see a bowl of soup, he's smiling because he wants to eat that bowl of soup. You see a man smiling, you see a dead body, it takes on a different connotation, because right. now this guy's smiling about a dead body. Yes. So the effect here is we are meant to infer that Louise is seeing this horse scene now. Right. And she doubled over as she's walking to the tent. This bothers her. And I think regardless of whatever she remembered before, now she's starting to get a sense of it as more real, even though she doesn't understand it. And we think it's her just thinking about the past, which is actually confusing. Like, why would she think about her daughter in this moment? So it's maybe our first clue that it's not the past. Yes, maybe. Grief is weird, though. You can think about your daughter in any moment. Sometimes things just come up like that when you least expect them. (laughs) Well, it could be just that she just had a moment of, like, happiness. She enjoyed talking to the alien, and it made her feel like guilt and got her back to grief, because I'm still grieving, that kind of thing. I'm not supposed to be happy and enjoying my job. And so she just remembered a moment with Hannah, and then we go back to her, and she's still walking toward the tent. There's men leaving trucks. We get condors telling Team 2 to go into the tent basic recording we heard last time, and we get soldiers, including Lasky, who we still don't know, although we will see some more from Mm -hmm. him in this segment. He and a couple other soldiers are standing there watching. They are bothered by her and Ian returning without their suits properly on. And then we cut to a checkup with Dr. Kettler that is not here in the script. This is after a completely different moment where she is, as she says, because he says, how do you feel? She says, overworked. It's when she is overworked. She collapses in the ops tent. And that's when she has a checkup. It's later. It's not after this decontamination. This scene is not, oh, we're worried you're you're contaminated. We're checking up on you. But that's where they put it in the editing so that it works that way. And it kind of still works because he talks about radiation and everything else. But it's supposed to be later. Is it odd that she says overworked or why this scene is That's the thing that makes it feel weird is she says overworked when they haven't done much. Or even if she did much, it just seems like the scene right before was 
transformative. It's like, I'm just thinking about myself. There are times when I have been really tired, maybe after a long teaching day, but if it was one of those like, the good just ones, brilliant, yeah. that wouldn't be like my first go-to word, even if could I she, was to- <laughs> Could she say overworked with a different tone where it's more like she doesn't want to tell him how she feels? No, it just seems casual, but I don't, I don't no, know. No, not how she does acting. say it. Like, yeah. <laughs> is, like, could it be she's trying to cover for how she actually feels? Cause she's got a mix of good feelings of how this mm-hmm. went. Plus, she just had a weird memory of her daughter. The editing makes this strange because the scene isn't supposed to be here. And then she says overworked when it's such a specific. We word. haven't yeah. <laughs> seen the overworked. Yeah. If this came after the montage that we're going to get. Mm-hmm. Okay. They've yeah. been doing a bunch of stuff, but it feels wrong. And. He he says, well, I guess I don't need to tell you, you tell you you put yourself at risk. There's no signs of radiation poisoning yet. We'll see how your blood tests look. For now, I'm going to give you another boost. And so there's a nurse there. They're taking blood. And Louis says, okay. And he says, no radiation. Nothing else we can detect either. But I'd give them a strong cocktail regardless. And then we cut to, oh, this is Hit Kettler talking to Halpern and Weber and in the hallway. And they're silhouetted as a lot of shots are in this. And Halpern replies, it's the first time we've made significant progress. Which is interesting, because I remember Halpern from the movie being the negative guy. And here he's the positive one in this conversation. (laughs) Well, maybe he's less of a negative guy and just more of a realistic cynic or critic, and he can acknowledge that something happened. (laughs) And so Weber says, all right, we'll take the risk. And that's when we cut to the phone bank as the camera dollies to Lasky, who we don't know his name. We don't know him, though, if we're paying attention, we have seen him, I think, three times now. And he's on a phone talking to his wife, who he calls Honey. And he says, okay, Honey. She says, what is going on there? He says, Honey. She says, just tell me. He says, you don't need to worry, okay? How can I not worry? Just calm down. Just calm down. And she says, Becky asked me if the monsters are going to kill Daddy. So, of course, this is so typical, like... Just telling his wife to calm down, who's freaking out. I don't think that ever goes well, by the way. But <laughs> well, Maybe don't call your wife from the top secret base where you can't tell her anything. Yeah. I think the purpose of this scene is just to give us a glimpse into how citizens or people off of the base are perceiving what's mm-hmm. going on with the aliens and what's going on on the base. Yeah, the citizens don't know what's in those shells. Yeah. They don't even know there's aliens. And when... Something is unknown, and you're not getting details about it, or you're not trusting details, especially we've talked about media coverage, and <laughs> we're probably getting different types of media coverage mm-hmm. just based on, on politics and different views. So it wouldn't be that surprising that people would be freaking out since... Well, yeah, and the previous <laughs> time we saw Lasky before this segment, he and some other soldiers were watching the news. Mm-hmm. And we'll get more of that later. He says, honey, it's not going to happen. She says, just stay safe. He says, you don't need to worry. She says, please, I'm so scared. And the conversation cuts away. And we also have in the scene, and in the scene prior, actually, when they're willing to let her sacrifice herself, even if she was contaminated, it's like they are recognizing that the reward Mm -hmm. has come from the risk. And so you get like a cost-benefit analysis and it's also what's in this scene too, which is really common in values debate or when we teach values and argumentation is the safety versus freedom. Yeah. A lot of policy comes from, are you valuing safety more or are you valuing freedom? Um, and the horse is freedom. So <laughs> Yeah. And how we define safety and freedom obviously is going to be based on so many other factors yeah. and this gets really layered. But just in a general sense, the risk versus reward and the safety versus freedom debate. Which, if we assume still that she's grieving for a dead daughter, 
the fact that she is willing to keep working when she might be contaminated and she's in her own little tent within the bigger tent could be seen as like her going worse in that direction. It's like, she's like, I'm just going to keep working till I die because what else is there? Or if in her mind, she's knowing that it is, or that she's seeing experiences that are to come rather than what were. She's less afraid because mm-hmm. she's like, well, I know I'm going to get through. Like, I know I'm going to live right. through this because it's, it's these an things inter- are it's going to It's an interesting mix because in the, the film doesn't tell you when she realizes what these things mm-hmm. are. And yeah. so it's either she's known the whole time and so she knows what's going to happen mm-hmm. or she's gradually realizing it and somewhere along the line, a sort of grieving depression mm-hmm. becomes something else and we don't notice. Which is an interesting commentary on depression right. yeah. for that matter because you can't <laughs> normally, you can't always see it. It looks like everything else. She's doing her job and doing it well, as we're about yeah. to hear. But we cut to Louise marking up a large printout of the logogram for Earth. And the PA says, uh, I'll just read the whole PA thing because it's, it's not that exciting, but it cuts yeah. through a bunch of scenes. Yeah. All junior xenolinguistics and science personnel must observe general curfew unless expressly authorized for extended work hours by unit COs. Curfew in effect as of 2200 hours. Noticed all late workers, fire watchers, and night staff effective immediately. Midnight rations will be served all night. So that's good news. Yeah. This PA just, it normalizes. It's like, even though everything is so unreal and unimaginable, it's like there's still always bureaucracy. (laughs) And with the passage of time, we see how the organization just like adjusts rules and Mm -hmm. how things that are absurd or even in highly absurd or highly stressful situations there's always that effort to try to normalize Especially and stabilize. Especially the military, they yeah. run on a schedule. <laughs> exactly. You know, wake you up to music and take down the flag to music and you got lights out time. There are rules. Yeah. So we see a bit of that like scientific, objective, more modern approach to organizations. But yeah, there's a lot going on at the mm-hmm. same time. as. <laughs> and then for visuals we get, uh, we're behind Louise as on the monitors, that logogram for Earth. And the second logogram, the one that says something about Abbott, but Costello said it, and I don't know what it says. And then smaller, there's the fifth logogram, which we don't have a translation for, and the second one again. And the focus changes, so we're on the monitor, and we can see that on the computer, the second one is marked like the one she's marking on the printout. Like they're tracking all the little bumps and things, figuring out parts of this language. And we get a close-up on her hand as she's noting these with a pen. And then we get a medium shot of her... There's another logogram. There's logo, there's printouts of these things all over the place, which is a nice big ones too. Uh, next to a duplicate monitor, which has the same stuff she has. She gets up and we're behind her again and she gets a fresh printout of Earth out instead of the one she's already drawing on. And she gets a ruler and she starts to draw. She draws a horizontal line across it through the middle. And then the sound of wind interrupts. And we cut to tall grass. And Hannah, I'm pretty sure this is Hannah age eight that we've seen before. And then it goes right back to Louise, and she looks up slowly, like she's seeing this and right at this moment. So the editing here is clear. And we cut to Hannah, age eight, playing with a caterpillar on a stick. We get a second shot of that, where she's like, got it closer to her, and she's touching it with her finger. And I like that Louise is drawing and analyzing their language. So we're seeing her processing the language and her skill in understanding their language simultaneously, like one is causing the other, right? So as she's mm-hmm. processing and understanding their language, she's, she's gain, this, gaining yeah. and seeing those memories. So she's changing through their yeah. interactions. That is how communication 
where we change through our, mm-hmm. just in the real world, like we change through our communication <laughs> interactions. And now we have the caterpillar symbolism. <laughs> Some things we probably are familiar with when we think of caterpillar, which is dealing with our potential and our transformation, which of course Louisa's doing as she's <laughs> processing and learning their language. It embodies fresh ideas, renewal, and unexpected outcomes. Caterpillars seem without defense. They're just so mm, like little yeah. cute and squishy. But their colors actually make it quite hard for predators to find them. And their hues are actually off-putting to other, yeah, just other animals and predators. They're also an omen of good luck, health, and joy. They can represent starting a new endeavor. Seeing a caterpillar is a presage to experiencing strikes of creative inspiration. They shed their former body, and it's an act of trust driven by their natural instincts. And that's understating it, by the way. Yeah. Well, you think of it in like the cartoon form, where like the caterpillar grows wings and it's a butterfly. They they go in a yeah, cocoon and their a body is destroyed. Destroy. Yeah. <laughs> it melts away into goo and reforms into a Yeah, new body. that transformation is it's, not just like, woo, I'm a caterpillar and yeah. then you wake up with no, just like real life transformation. It's mm-hmm. ugly and you suffer and you get hurt and other people get hurt and there's grief and it's messy and that's yeah. <laughs> that's how it goes. So we have in the literal sense Louise and her transformation. Mm-hmm. And her change of perception as well. And caterpillar, if you see a caterpillar, you might need to fine-tune your intuition and pay more attention to nonverbal and non-physical things around you, which she's literally doing in this (laughs) in this scene. Woolly bear, which is a type of caterpillar, I'm just throwing this in for fun, is known as the groundhog of insects. (laughs) (laughs) And Folklore tells of the woolly bear's ability to let you know how bad the winter will be oh. when you examine the bands of color in its <laughs> in its fur. So if they have wide bands, that's cold, nasty weather. And if it's thin bands, then it's warmer weather. Oh, so the, their body shows you what the pattern of weather yeah. through winter has been. That's yeah. That's, I, I would I would point out with the combination of the horse and then the caterpillar. This is Hannah younger than she was in this shot with the horse. Mm-hmm. And so this is, Caterpillar is hopeful. The black horse we saw isn't necessarily, it might be more of like that death omen kind of thing. Mm-hmm. She's getting older, she's closer to when she's going to die. She dies at, what, 15. Here, she's 8. She's- so are we kind of getting like a, a Benjamin Button or the Daniel Quinn, like kind of going backwards from the death to the rebirth? Like it is the way the narration the is yeah. structured. <laughs> Louise's narration, not this narration we're about to get. Louise's narration is structured that way. She started at the end of Hannah's life. And also that first scene was a mixed up version mm-hmm. of young, middle, not old, because she was only 15. So it's kind of also a commentary of how through learning new things and growing and changing, that can help to move us away from our grief yeah. toward new experiences and new relationships. So continuing this little montage, we are behind Louise again. The camera's moving closer as... Um, There's more printouts around her, and then we cut back to a stick in the water. There's no sound, Mm -hmm. which is really nice. And then back to Louise, the camera's moving even closer. So it's like, camera's putting us in her head as she's seeing this. And then we cut to Hannah again by the stream. She flips a rock with that stick, 
And then we cut to a close-up of Louise and the present sound of people talking in the lab in the tent comes back. She refocuses and then we're behind her again as she draws a line from top right to bottom left in the diagram. But there's already a vertical one, which bugs me because she didn't draw that. So flipping a rock, uncovering new things, mm-hmm. seeing what's underneath. Yeah. And um, I don't know why I put this in my notes. I don't think it matters. I think it's just the line she's drawing. But in heraldry, this mm-hmm. line is called bend sinister. Hmm. Drawing diagonal from the top right to bottom left, which just means that you're left-handed. <laughs> It's weird. Sinister I'm became bad later. People say that, but I still just draw an X. Like, well, I don't even think it means you do that one first. But sinister is to the left, and well, yeah, because left-handed people were evil, and yeah. they were. <laughs> I and joke. I am left-handed. Clearly, yeah. I'm just. <laughs> and then we get a musical cue for the next montage, and this track is called Heptapod B, which is the label for the written language. I'll give you the short version of this track from Johansson's explanation. The undertones are layers of recordings on analog tape, recorded at one speed but played at another. The rhythm is a combination of a modular synthesizer as a bass drum and pieces of wood being hit, and then eventually woodwinds join in as well. The vocals are deliberately wordless. They're syllables, not words. Johansson explains, It's almost like baby talk, like language being developed and being formed. And that kind of resonates with the actual scene where they are reverse engineering the language based on the writing and on the sounds emitted by the aliens. The vocals are sampled from Aaron by Joan La Barbera, supposedly inspired by a photograph of a father carrying the coffin of his son, an IRA member who died during a hunger strike. the longer version of Johansson's explanation, there's actually an episode of Song Exploder where he explains just this track, Heptapod B, and how he put it together. And it's quite interesting. It's only about 15 minutes long. What we're getting is a staccato voice at the beginning of it, and then gradually comes in where you see it seems like words, but not quite. Very different from the music we've gotten so far. So what are you getting from this music in terms of setting the scene? Does it feel energizing I, I exciting think hypnotic what's going on i think on it goes with the same though i don't like this the sudden narration from ian explaining everything mm-hmm. is kind of the movie giving us shorthand of jumping forward like lots of other stuff happened blah 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 next we're so far ahead and the music kind of does that too because we just had this really quiet moment with her seeing hannah by the water and then this music comes in and it's got a very fast rhythm to it and very steady and so it's like no we have to move this movie yeah. has to actually happen we can't just linger on thing even though i'm sure Denis Villeneuve wanted to if you've watched blade runner 2049 you know he's he's fine with long shots of waiting while things happen yeah because this film is a nice tight hundred minute standard mm-hmm. hour 40 yeah. film it doesn't go on like two and a half hours no. three hours <laughs> and people still complain it's slow so 
this this music is getting forward and then the narration comes in and moves it forward even more because we cut away from louise to the interior of the nave i like this shot because it's shot at the floor and at first it looks like it might be like waves on water at night when we were just watching water yeah but then the camera tilts up and we see it's inside the nave in the alien ship one of the heptopods is walking left to right and ian's narration comes in and he says oh he's gonna over explain things oh. <laughs> here are some of the many things we don't know about heptopods greek hepta seven pod foot seven feet heptopod keeping it simple i like i guess that's okay yeah they're gonna call them heptopods the audience people some people in the audience could be like what <laughs> who are they trying to answer this in any meaningful way is hampered by the fact that outside being able to see them and hear them and we get a close-up on the camera recording the heptopod walking it's reflected in the lens the heptopods leave absolutely no footprint and here we get a shot of the shell over the field. This is not from now. There is no military camp. And there's no equipment nearby. So this shot is just the shell. It's just an extra shot they put together. I'm not sure why. The chemical composition of their spaceship is unknown. The chemical composition is actually not true. That's yeah. in the script, even. Oh. <laughs> they took a scraping of it and sampled it. And I had notes on what that was and then realized that's not in the film. And those notes got left behind. The shell emits no waste, no gas, no radiation. Let me cut to a shot of a different shell off the coast, uh, naval vessels around it, including one right under it. From the coordinates given in promotional material, this shot is too close to the coast to be Australia or Shanghai, and the shore is not urban enough to be the Black Sea site at Kabardinka in Russia, and not frozen enough to be the Denmark site off Klofbjerg, Greenland. I think it's supposed to be the Black Sea site based on the map we're about to see, which is also wrong. Ian continues, assuming that the shells communicate with each other, they do so without detection. The air between the shells is untroubled by sonic emission or light wave. We get another location, possibly Greenland, because the reflection seems to be in water that's partly frozen. And then we get a big question. Are they scientists or tourists? If they're scientists, they don't seem to ask a lot of questions. Yeah. Yeah, I really like this line. I don't know if it was something that stuck out to you or that you thought about as well or it was more just a line in passing but <laughs> a lot of this narration here seems like the dumbed down version and ian doesn't seem like a dumbed down talking kind of guy it feels off yeah for his it's like it suddenly comes in in the movie and explains yeah. too much and it's explaining it too simply i'm like is he on the news if, the, yeah. if at the end of the <laughs> sequence we cut to him at a news place being interviewed this is great Right. Yeah, because most news and news he would have to dumb it down and explain it are told to yeah. speak and write at about a fifth and sixth mm -hmm. grade level, and that's so the audience can understand. Not everyone has the but privilege. But we don't of know it. who he's narrating to. He's just <laughs> suddenly narrating. Louise was narrating before. But I do like this question. I think. Oh, the question's fine. I think it defines human experience. It describes how we live. Some of us do more or do one more than the other, but. Like there are people who are asking questions and testing everything from the time they're little, challenging mm -hmm. everything and <laughs> trying to figure out as much as they can about the world around them. And then there are other people who wander through life and they're like tourists, engaging in new experiences. They tend to be more thrill-seeking, yeah. more living in the present. And it's almost, so I'm saying this is kind of like a very different brain function. Mm -hmm. Like the scientist, well, more neurotic, more <laughs> like... I have a, a line about that. Just this, at the time of recording this, just this past week on an Adam Savage YouTube video, 
he was talking about something someone said to him when they were working on Mythbusters and working with explosives. And the guy said, I don't know if this is exact wording, the difference between screwing around and science is writing it down. Yeah. <laughs> well, Which, with language works, and stuff, yeah, that I was going to say that works for for Because once you write it down, language. you have to define it. You have to make it, put it in specific terms. You have to measure it. I just feel it's, I don't know, I just really liked it. It's like two types of people, two ways of thinking, and sometimes we don't understand each other. Like, mm-hmm. someone will ask a question, and I'm like, okay, here's 4,000 details about it. And then the other person's just like, I don't need to look this up. And it's not that they're not smart. It's just, they don't think I guess, some more ex- just more acceptance of living in the present moment and not really needing to have, like, needing to have the information. They need the I'm minimum. to articulate this. <laughs> <laughs> some people don't need to understand everything in order to experience it. Exactly. Thank you. That's a good way to say it. And some people need Other to understand people do. everything yeah. <laughs> in order to experience it. And then understand it more and then ruminate on those mm-hmm. understandings to make sure that they're And they correct. will make it yeah. horribly unfun for the others. <laughs> yeah. And they will make it annoying for them. It's it's fine. As long as you know which one you are and who the other the person you're with is, you're good. Yeah. Oh, now it's my turn. <laughs> <laughs> so then we get the montage under his narration. We get a really fast montage before he even speaks again. An aerial map labeled as Montana, USA. It is the visual of San Fabienne, which is the location where the shell is in the film. So it's appropriate. An aerial map of the Black Sea location labeled as uh, Novorosilsk, Russia. But while it is the largest city nearby, it is several miles north. The land on this map would be Kabardinka instead. And that is not the visual of Kabardinka that we see on this map. I do not know what map, what coastline they used, or why they used the wrong one. That's only the first time. We get an aerial map of the Indian Ocean, the Australia location. They can't get that one wrong. It's just ships in the water. We get an aerial map of Kujalik, Greenland, uh, the Denmark location. But this is not the location indicated by the coordinates, or the shot we just had of the shell over partly frozen water, because it should be water between a bunch of islands near Klofbjerg, which is 800 miles farther north than what this is labeled as. We get an aerial map of Siberia, Russia. This might actually be the correct location. It seems to look like it uh, in Tamersky, Dolgano, and Anetsky district. We get an aerial map of Shanghai, China. The promotional material puts the shell in the middle of the city. This is not in the middle of the city, but the promotional coordinates and the coordinates on this map do fit with not being in the middle of the city. This is about 50 miles out at sea, which is like the news coverage we just saw last segment or segment before. We get an aerial map of Hokkaido, Japan, which is correctly in the middle of the city, but this is not a map of Hokkaido, Japan. We get an aerial map of Kenema, Sierra Leone. Like Hokkaido, this is correctly in the middle of the city, but this image is not Kenema because this is a very dry location and Kenema is actually a very green location. It's not a desert. We get the same for Punjab, Pakistan. It is correctly in the city, but not the right city. Specifically, it should be in Urshad Colony, Kampur, Rahim Tarkhan, Punjab, Pakistan. Just say no from the coordinates. And then we get the Devon, UK location, specifically Dartmouth, Devon, UK. This map is really close. Oh, it's so close. The coordinates and the shell location are off by like 2,000 feet. It's like two fields over. They're so close. But neither is on the beach, which is what the promotional poster had. Then we get the map of Khartoum, Sudan, which actually only misses by about a thousand feet, which is pretty good. 
this technically isn't Khartoum, though. Khartoum is nearby Big City, about 30 miles away. This is Ombata. And then we continue with, uh, at this point, his narration has come back in. He says, why did they park where they did? We get a closer thing of the Black Sea map, closer thing of the Siberian map. Then we get the Marrake Venezuela map, which is off by just like two blocks in the city, which is really, really good. However, the actual coordinates are in a military base, which would affect the structure and plot of this film a lot. <laughs> the shell on this map is not in that base. It's a couple blocks away. But it's military property that the coordinates are in, in Augustin Alvarez, Marrake, Venezuela. We get close on the Greenland map, close on the Devon UK map. If you live in Devon UK, it's sitting right over the Kingswear Park Club, if you know where that is. We get the Pakistan map close up, Indian Ocean map close up, Sierra Leone map close up. And unlike the promotional photo, it's right over a really dense neighborhood. We get a close up on the Hokkaido map, close on Sudan map, Venezuela map, Shanghai map, and then the Montana map, bigger but rotated weirdly. And he says the world's most decorated experts can't crack that one. And then we get this black world map where the locations come up one at a time, marked in red. We've already heard what they all are, but just in case you care. USA, Montana, Venezuela, America, Greenland, Kujalek, Sierra Leone, Kenema, UK, Devon, Sudan, Khartoum, Russia, Black Sea, Pakistan, Punjab, Indian Ocean, Russia, Siberia, China, Shanghai, Japan, Hokkaido. Meanwhile, he's saying the most plausible theory is they chose places on Earth with the lowest incidence of lightning strikes which is a stupid theory and probably wrong because 70% of lightning... Well, no, it could be right. It's just stupid. 70% of lightning strikes actually occur in the tropics, and only three of these ships are in the tropics. So maybe. (laughs) But it's kind of silly. You think these aliens have to deal with lightning? I don't think so. They're fine. But then he gives the next best theory. But there are exceptions. The next most plausible theory is that Sheena Easton had a hit song at each of these sites in 1980. So we just don't know. So this was super funny. Since <laughs> Easton had no hits until 1981, <laughs> she, didn't, she didn't have anything anywhere. And some fun facts about Sheena Easton. She didn't even consider singing for a career until she saw the film The Way We Were with Barbara Streisand. <laughs> and Streisand singing over the opening credits, Sheena says, overtook her and convinced her that when that what she wanted most was to be a singer and to be able to affect others in the same way. And her top grades in school earned her a scholarship to the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama in Glasgow. She went to school or went to college in the late 70s to become a speech teacher. <laughs> so I think that's a funny like I'm wondering if they knew that and this film's about language that's and she was going to be yeah. A speech teacher, and she was singing in a band called Something Else by Night, just in local clubs, and she chose to study teaching rather than performing. However, one of her tutors coaxed her into auditioning for a BBC program called The Big Time, which sounds like it was a reality show even <laughs> back then, or like a precursor yeah. of an American Idol type reality show. Was it competition, or was it more like solid gold kind of thing? It was... Well, it was Ranson, the producer of the show, was planning a documentary film to chronicle an unknown's rise to pop music stardom. Oh, cool. And Easton was selected as a subject for the program. And when she met and sang, Dusty Springfield worked on it, if you remember hmm. him. And they told her that she was unlikely to make the big time. And then a year later, she did. <laughs> So, the aliens heard it, and the rest is history. Yeah. 
So she was just discovered and started recording in late 1980. And it was in 1981 that she had her first album release, which was called Take My Time. Hmm. I just thought it was like a little funny too, that it's called Time and this film right about time. And then her most famous song is Morning Train, which also deals with time. It's Morning Train 9 to 5. The only reason that song wasn't called 9 to 5, which was its original title, is because Dolly Parton had her 9 to 5 hit around the same time. So I feel like whoever chose Sheena Easton clearly did so. Someone knew what they were doing, (laughs) yeah. yeah. And it's a funny little addition that Uh most people wouldn't even... It would just be in passing like a weird thing. (laughs) It's also fun that, like the Sanskrit word for war... Like the kangaroo, it's wrong. <laughs> so they have yeah. these interesting side notes right, that right, are incorrect. Right. Yeah, that too. And even the name Easton refers to a direction, mm-hmm. space, and t- it's, it's cool. But <laughs> it's like a little Easter egg in the film. Easter egg. Wow, that's uh-huh. a horrible pun. Okay, continue. <laughs> I was going to say Easton egg, but. <laughs> so then we get a shot of the tent again. There's a monitor, the fifth and fourth logograms, which you don't have translations for. There's a red fifth one rotating over an inverted fourth one. So they're comparing these things, which is nice. And the camera dollies forward, so Louise comes into focus. She has her own isolation tent within the larger tent, where she's still working. Ian says, how do they communicate? Here, Louise is putting us all to shame. The first breakthrough was to discover that there's no correlation between what a heptapod says and what a heptapod writes. Uh, we get a shot of Louise pointing at the logogram for human, with four others standing around. This is actually an error, this shot, Mm. because on the table is the logogram that's officially translated as Louise writes heptapod, which she has not done yet. She won't do that (laughs) until minute 75. I think probably it's not the scene is a problem. It's the props people printed the wrong logograms on the table. (laughs) Then we cut to the scissor lift going up. This is Ian and Louise and presumably Mark's on it with a large whiteboard. Uh, we see inside the nave, Ian walks past Marks and the camera, then past Louise and the whiteboard that says Ian walks. We get a reverse shot as Ian walks and behind the glass, Abbott, I'm pretty sure, also walks in the same direction. And Ian says, unlike all written human languages, their writing is semi-sciographic. As the compu- we get a shot of the computer with one window stretching out a logogram horizontally and the fifth and fourth logograms, which I don't have a translation for, so it makes sense they keep having, including them, because they don't know either, and those are in another window on the computer. Semasiography, which comes from the Greek word semasia, mm-hmm. which is signification or meaning, and yeah. the Greek graphia, writing, writing with signs. Semasiography is a non-phonetic-based technique to communicate information without the necessary interception of forms of speech, and it's not based on spoken words. Something I learned, it actually predates the advent of the creation of the language-based writing system. It's like mm, an ancient yeah, yeah <laughs> form of writing. and But contemporarily, it's used in computer icons, musical notation, emoji, and mathematical notation. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's studied within the field of linguistics. And my favorite note in the Wikipedia for it, was the reference to the, what's it called, the grass mud horse, which is a made-up animal, yeah. was invented in 2009 because in Mandarin, the words grass mud horse, if you pronounce them slightly different, are fuck your mother. And the symbols are basically the same. 
And so it was a protest against censorship. Thank you. In China? Yeah. <laughs> protest against censorship in China yes. online. And there was an article that actually came up with a bunch of made up animals that all had offensive names if you just pronounce them slightly different. But they're the same lettering. So because they're, they're, Letters are somewhat semi-psychographic. They don't represent sounds. The same symbols can have different sounds and mean completely different things. And that amused me. That they use it as a protest thing by putting it up. Ian, of course, explains. It conveys meaning. It doesn't represent sound. So he's keeping it simple again. And we see Louise with the that first guy who went up to shake her hand when she was taken into the tent in minute 23. They're looking over some papers. We get a shot of the computer with one logogram really big and marked up and one piece of that logogram in its own box. And there's 12 smaller ones on the screen, but I will point out that the behind the scenes people cheated because pictures 1, 8, and 12 are the same symbol. Pictures 2 and 11 are the same symbol. <laughs> picture 4 and 9 are the same symbol. And picture 5 and 10 are the same symbol. They all have that same piece highlighted, yeah. but they only use four Would symbols. It have been that difficult they could have just had a grid symbols. of four symbols. Yeah. You know? Yeah, have fewer or make <laughs> Ian says perhaps they view our form of writing as a wasted opportunity. And we get a zoomed in thing on the top of that last logogram with lines and dots measuring its bumps and strokes. And then more dots appear and then more lines connect them. Ian says passing up a second communication channel. And we get a really fast series of logograms. I'll just tell you what they are and probably put the pictures on Instagram. Mother. Planet, which by the way has no similarity to the logogram for Earth. Life, which has no similarity to either human or heptapod. Man. Star. Heptapod, which which is one of the official ones. Child, which seems to share parts with mother, which I like. Woman, which isn't similar at all to man. Earth, human, and walk, which are all official ones. Time, which is not the official one for time, (laughs) which I find very strange. This is much simpler. System, which I'm wondering how they got them to translate this one. Technology. Solar system, which has no similarities at all to system. Home, which has no similarity to planet... But might actually be similar to Earth. So they, they got interesting things going on here. They put some thought into it on some of these. And then number and then write. And then we're tracking behind someone in the big tent with all the screens. Uh, someone watching the Pakistan screen and on the big bank of screens, Pakistan is on the big screen. And Ian continues, we have our friends in Pakistan to thank for their study of how heptopods write. Because unlike speech, a logogram is free of time. And we go back to the nave floor shot and tilting up from it. And then we see Ian look up from a box of stuff at Louise, editing suggests, and he says, like, there's, sh- I think he's going to say shell or ship, I don't remember. But the segment cuts off. I do have more notes, though, because on this, as he finishes the sentence, we have a shot from behind Louise next to a tripod with poster boards where she's taking one off. And only Abbott is there. Costello's not hmm. there. Or only Costello's there, and I can't tell them apart. I don't know. Yeah. I think it's Abbott. <laughs> one of them are there. Now, the narration has skipped over whole scenes from the script. It has skipped over most of the content of the original short story. Because the short story doesn't have the plot with, like, the Chinese general and all that. It's more about them just experiencing these aliens and learning the language, and it changes her experience of time. More story than plot. We skipped over so much of that. And Ian has only told you the basics. But one thing we did skip over is an entire subplot in which the citizens we've seen... In an aerial shot earlier, gathering nearby are starting to encroach too close to the base because there's too many of them. And so we get a conversation between Weber and Sergeant Rutherford. There's a character I'm pretty sure is not even in the film. Rutherford says, Colonel. Weber says, Sergeant, that perimeter is too close to the site. 
Rutherford says, we're a mile out. All due respect, I don't think anyone expected what we're seeing, sir. My men have contained it best we could. Weber says, then we need a new plan. Rutherford points at a map and says, we have about four square miles of barricade to cover, but you get me 200 more men, I, I can patrol the entire zone with enough for three shifts and support staff. Weber says, what about monitoring stations instead, set down motion detectors, low light cameras. Rutherford says, not as good, we could see a breach in plenty of time, but we won't have any boots at the incursion point to choke it off. Best bet you're catching trespassers as they get to base camp, and that's too late. Weber says, what's another plan? And Rutherford points to his label on a board that says 200 men. So Rutherford wants to get more military in there to keep citizens away. He, uh, When Weber shakes his head, he says, why not? And Weber says, think it through, Sergeant. You're asking to bring in a battalion of troops and camp them in a place where the only potential targets are creatures from outer space or their fellow Americans. Do you see how that's a problem? And the conversation continues, but that entire subplot just goes away from the film. But it does tie into what would have been Lasky in the original version of the film. He's not a soldier at the camp. He's an ROT soldier who was in Louise's class at the beginning of the film. We kind of skipped over him because going through segment by segment, I didn't realize he was as important because I'd been a few months since I read the script. But there, he is now seen in the sprawl of RV cam- RVs, campers, trailers, and cars parked outside the barricade. There's people gathered around campfires and everything that camped out there. And we see hunting rifles and two handguns resting on a table. One of the young men nearby is the ROT student from the opener. So the violence that's going to come is going to come from someone we've seen from the opening sequence. And they changed that to make it a soldier from the camp. And I don't know why. I guess this movie, though it's Canadian, is an American film. It's about American military presence and why we can be a problem. (laughs) And so can China. And how that dispute is going to be is a problem on a global scale so i think they made him even an rot soldier would have worked though for that but i think they wanted him to be more a soldier who's supposed to be there because that makes it less of an intrusion and more of what we mean to do is sometimes bad hmm. we need a geopolitical gust political yeah. science gust especially in a, in a segment <laughs> or two when they it gets weird when the they start having a lot of the bureaucratic talk and it's going to mess up things because there's some serious messaging going on in this film about American military and government from Canadian filmmaker, which I really like. And I think some people who saw this don't were either tuned out by then or <laughs> just wanted more aliens or excitement. Yeah, something. <laughs> they wanted a different kind of movie, but I like this kind. It's weird. It's like when people say this film is slow. I guess maybe it's physically slow but it's almost overwhelming with the amount of thought and mm-hmm. idea. Oh, yeah, <laughs> which is why so i love much. it so much because my brain is just going so rapidly and then there are so many things that even i'm i've missed in multiple viewings mm-hmm. that are coming up now which are fun to think about but yeah so the that segment ends the narration will continue for me in in the, the next segment explaining some more stuff and then the movie decides to have a plot because, found its plot because we heading Hollywood. to the second half. Of it. <laughs> yes, it finally has. They They're were, going to the second half. They're like, oh shit, we don't have a plot. Well, yeah, <laughs> they were afraid they were going to lose everybody. <laughs> Which is something I love about the short story mm-hmm. is it doesn't have a plot. Yeah. It's just more and more, even more detailed explanation than this narration mm-hmm. here of like, there's a whole physics thing. I'm going to try to understand it so I can explain it in some segment soon about like the direct the way light travels and it's. It's exciting in the moment, and it's this weird stuff I don't even understand, and I loved it. <laughs> and then the story ends. It's like, yeah, we finished talking to the aliens. It's fine. It's cool. <laughs> Changed my life. And it's so casual, because that's the way Louise is now. 
Right. She doesn't experience time where like this was a huge moment. This is just one of those things. Part of the overall experience. But I think in a film, they probably thought that would be too much of a like a letdown because the audience wants something to happen and wanted to mean something. But the whole point is it doesn't mean anything because it's just one thing that happened. And people don't want to hear that. They want things to be exciting. <gasps> I love it. So we finished I think by I like lecturing it, I think I like audience. it more yeah, right. <laughs> if you want to hear me talk about a similar film like that, in the similar similar way, but more to the end of life than the experience of it, go listen to Annihilation Minute and you'll hear more of that. There's a lot of extra research and odd tangents in it. And if you want to hear fun stories about artists you probably haven't thought about in decades, like Sheena Easton, you can listen to. <laughs> listen to life as a playlist where i do that along with some autobiography and also just talking about philosophy or politics or whatever's going on i feel like talking about that that week yeah that just happened thank you for listening follow the show on facebook twitter and instagram at five minute arrival or go to lemmingdrops.com for links to think this was the beginning of your story.